Hey everyone, welcome back to the Automata Podcast. I'm John Southurst from bitsonline.com. And with me is Daniel Corey from Pactum Capital. How's it going, Daniel? It's going good, John. Hi, everybody. We're going to bring you all the latest news from what we call the automated economy that includes blockchain, cryptocurrencies, digital assets, and all the parts that hold it all together. Uh, some of this will make your head spin or a uh, head hurt, depending on what week it is, I think. Today, our guest is Preston Byrne. Now, Preston's been on the blockchain scene for many years now, um, probably mainly in the legal and compliance sector, I think. He was uh, the founder, COO at uh, Eris Industries, and that later changed its name to Monax, specializing in sort of private blockchains and uh, that sort of thing. Um, he's now working as an independent consultant, and he's back studying law, and in his part-time, advising on commercial issues which surround the blockchain industry. Uh, welcome, Preston. I hope I got all that right. How are you? Yeah, today? I mean, it, it's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, you know, as you know, typical postgraduate student wastrel kind of stuff. Right, right. Um, for starters, could you just tell us how you um, how you got into this space in the first place? Yeah, so there, there are two people to blame. Um, one of them is a guy named Zachary Caceres, and he at the time was running a think tank in Guatemala. And he, he said, what if we could have an accounting system for developing countries which worked like Bitcoin, where you couldn't falsify uh, intergovernmental payments or interdepartmental payments for governments? And I thought that was pretty appealing. The second one, and, and really the thing that made it hit home, was when Jackson Palmer created Dogecoin. And that is when the penny dropped that you could have a great many different blockchains instead of just one or two. And, um, and within six months, I'd founded uh, my own company with two other guys uh, doing exactly that with, with the thesis that there were going to be millions of blockchains, not just a handful. And uh, that was actually the first uh, ever open source permission blockchain design. And uh, yeah, I took it, took it from there. I just wanted to ask you something about what you wrote in Coindesk a couple of years ago. You had uh, four hype-free predictions for, uh, for blockchain in private blockchains in 2016. Now, I know like even a week is a long time in crypto. Like what, what's changed since 2016? Do you stand by all of that? You know, it's, I don't um, because I, I turned out to be wrong. Um, so I, I was a little early. I, I had thought at the time, so, so 2014 and 2013, well, let's go back to 2013. 2013 was the, the first year that everyone really got caught by surprise uh, by Bitcoin, that you started seeing the market cap of Bitcoin, uh, you know, break the, you know, $10 billion, which which made a lot of sense, because if you looked at like payment companies like Western Union, you know, small mid caps, uh, their, their market caps are around 10 billion. So all of a sudden, people started acknowledging Bitcoin as this potentially very serious competitor. Uh, to existing financial incumbents. And so 2014, everyone was kind of piling in behind that. And you had the first crop of ICO schemes that we saw. So Ethereum was one, BitShares was another, ProtoShares was another, uh, MadeSafe was another. So you had all these schemes coming up that were trying to be sort of Bitcoin 2.0. Um, and so that at the time, uh, I thought, you know, maybe we should do this enterprise database thing. 2015 then came along and you started seeing uh, companies, uh, you know, doing enterprise deployments, so digital asset holdings, Chain, Symbiont, uh, Eris, later Monax. Um, and then I said, for 2016, you know, it's not going to be companies raising $100 million. You're going to have to start looking at the fundamentals of what people are pulling in or what they're developing in terms of, um, you know, in terms of, uh, in terms of actual enterprise deployments and use cases. So, 
you know, there are a, a number of different deployments. It was a little slower than that, so that, that didn't really happen in 2016. And the hype continued in blockchain, but it didn't continue in the enterprise space. The enterprise space was very much uh, required at a very early stage to start proving that it was viable and that it was more efficient than the existing database infrastructure, which these companies were using to mediate their commercial transactions. Um, so they, they were held to a higher standard. The cryptocurrency uh, space, on the other hand, has gone just completely uh, stratospheric in the last 12 months. Um, and so as a consequence of that, you know, the hype really didn't go away. It just kind of got uh, channeled into something else. So before it was venture hype, now it's kind of retail hype, um, if that makes sense. Um, so, so I was a little slow on, on seeing when, when private blockchains were going to get adopted, and I didn't expect cryptocurrency to have another boom as it has. I like the phrase retail hype. How do you feel about this kind of retail craziness that's been going on in the market? I feel awful, um, to be honest with you, and not um, you know not because you know <laughs> whenever you say whenever you say anything critical about uh, about the price of Bitcoin or investing in it, you know, of course the internet immediately piles on you and you know says oh you're just a no coiner you're just salty bitter you know, that, that kind of stuff. Um, but I think that uh, I think that what we're going to see, so there, you're starting to see the anecdotal stories. There was a news piece on the other day of a guy who sent a wire to Coinbase, um, and it was in an account he held jointly with his wife. And so Coinbase received the wire, but because the the name on his account at Coinbase and the name on the bank account didn't match, uh, the the transaction was held up for something like two months, and he had to get a news station involved in order to actually get the funds released. Similarly, you hear stories about um, the Wall Street Journal in, interviewed an older gentleman a while back, and he said, "Well, I've invested into Bitcoin or something like that. That's big B I G, and um, and so so you have a lot of people who are investing into this stuff who don't really understand what they're getting themselves into." Um, in some cases, uh, you know, you know, of course, there's a, there's a degree there's there's a degree of you know, well, maybe they should have looked out for their own interests and been more a bit more cautious. But when you're selling things to the investing public, you know, in a, in a retail setting to your average Joe on the street, um, it's long been known that they don't exercise the same level of diligence as an institutional or professional investor. So as a consequence, I think there might be a lot of people getting taken by surprise uh, by the vagaries of the Bitcoin market, which uh, they would not have been exposed to if they were accessing the capital markets through more traditional channels. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's very easy for people like uh, you and I to say to people, you got to do your own due diligence now. But I think that the average investor doesn't even know what that means. Like they don't even know where to start doing their due diligence. So what, what would you advise people to do if they were even thinking about uh, investing in an ICO other than, you know, don't? I mean, don't is, <laughs> don't is kind of the first piece of advice. Um, you know, I, I, I think we're very fortunate because we've been around a long time um, and we know most people personally um, in this space. So I, I have the ability to look at a project and within five seconds or you know, within a, a half a day, calling up a couple of buddies of mine and saying, have you heard of these people? Do you know who they are? Are they legit? You can find out whether a, pro a project is legitimate or not, whether you know, the credentials of the team are sufficient or not to, to match up with the claims that the marketing is making. If you don't have that kind of sort of insider access to determine whether someone is legitimate or whether they have the ability to, to deliver what they've promised, it's really very hard to separate fact from fiction 
um, in the marketing. I mean, so if you if you look at something like let's say Filecoin, and uh, Filecoin is one of the most legitimate teams in the space. Juan Bennett, I think any you know, everybody respects him. Uh, you know, IPFS was very popular and continues to be popular in the Ethereum community. So when he turned around and said, you know what, I'm doing an ICO, I looked at it and said, you know, that's kind of understandable. Um, I can see why he's doing that. Similarly, the Tendermint team, right? So that would be Jay and Ethan. Uh, when they said they were going to do an ICO, I was like, you know what? They, you know, they're very good, very talented consensus engineers. Jay, I would rank in, you know, top three or four. Ethan in top ten, and you know, maybe maybe he's he's learned a bit since he's since he left Eris. But um, but yeah, they're they're both brilliant guys. And so you go, okay, well, I, I understand what they're doing. Um, your average person doesn't have the ability to just go and find out and assess someone's credentials, or or having you know having had known them since before they were running companies and when they were working you know outside of blockchain. Um, so we're really fortunate in that respect, and I just don't think it's really possible for someone to acquire that level of knowledge uh, in in a fast enough time to really make an informed decision. I think um, some people assume that if you've got the wherewithal to um, to acquire some Bitcoin. Perhaps Ethereum and invest in an ICO, then you're you're probably smart enough to be doing the investing. That that's not always the case, I guess. Um, is there is there really any way to make this better, or um, do we, do we actually have to have external regulation, or is there a way we can actually educate people? I, I don't even know if that's possible, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. Um, do we need to have external regulation? Is kind of a um, that's one of those theoretic, purely theoretical questions, because as a practical matter, we do have external regulation. Um, and in the United States, very especially, we have external regulation, and the regulators have been very clear about that. But also, if you look at, for example, I'm an English qualified lawyer. If you look at the United Kingdom, there are regulations there which could just as easily apply to the kinds of transactions which, which token sales uh, constitute. So, so in, the, in that sense, no, we have the regulation, it's there. In terms of improving things, um, you know, I, I don't know. I think the way that you improve something like this is you get people to, to put in the work and demonstrate that they actually care enough about investor disclosures to do the bare minimum that's required before they start selling investable instruments to the public. So if we assume, just for the sake of argument here, that uh, the tokens are investment contracts or securities, then what you have to do is you have to go and avail yourself of one of you know several different routes if you're going to sell tokens to the public, um, and th that involves making significant disclosures to the relevant regulators, either Canadian, American, or, or English, or wherever else you are. Uh, publishing a document which uh, which is signed off by some lawyers and auditors, you know, accountants, and um, and then after that. You have to do ongoing financial disclosures and other material disclosures as to the state of the project. So when you do an ICO, and in the sort of 20, 2017 sense of the of the uh, of the term, you're not doing any of that. Uh, maybe in 2018, 2019, we're going to see startups that actually do go through all of those steps and do comply with all the diligence, which is expensive and in a huge time sink and and really very painful. Um, if you're running a small company, you have a lot of administrative overhead if you choose to do that. But by choosing to do that, it means that you're making a lot of disclosures so that you suddenly, instead of a startup being a black box where you look at it and say, well, actually, I know the guy, so he's legit. Um, you say, okay, well, here's a document which says that you know the startup is managing its funds in accordance to this, and then the law firm is doing this, and okay, and these disclosures have been made, and here's the update to the project, which has been signed off by an independent group of people who are hired by the company to be independent. 
that's a really different proposition than saying, oh, we'll update you on the company blog in six months um, and tell you that you know, the project's going to get shipped in two weeks. So that, you know, just because people have made money on sort of the first batch, um, you know, without um, you know, the early adopters who got it in 2014 have, generally speaking, gotten out pretty well. Uh, or done pretty well with their investments. Now there's so much of this stuff, it's highly likely that that's not going to be the case for most of the ICOs we see today. And so as a, as a result, I think people you know, are entitled to more disclosure. What's your opinion of the concept of the utility token? So that that's an interesting one. Um, I don't, so, so there's nothing, how to put it, let us suppose I have a stick, right? I go out into my yard, and I pick up a stick and I bring it inside and I put it on the table and it's sitting there, it's a stick, right? I can do sticky things with the stick. I can throw it into the fire. I can give it to my dog. Um, I can do all kinds of, of things with this stick. I can, I can, you know, I don't know, make it into a picture frame. Um, I can break it into little pieces and line it up, you know, if I'm OCD. You know, there, are, there are a whole range of things I can do. I have this thing, it's sitting in front of me. If I choose to then take that stick and then inscribe on it with scrimshaw or you know, with a little Swiss army knife or something, an agreement into the side of the wood um, and say that, and then sign it you know, etched in the wood, um, I could potentially turn that stick into a security, right? So the point is with the token is that tokens, crypto tokens by themselves, um, they're just entries on a database, right? It's just a data structure and it's a way of organizing information. Um, if you then use it in a certain way, this it can transmogrify much like a stick that you, you know, carve an agreement into and hand to somebody else. It can it can transmogrify into a contract or some other type of agreement, uh, which then is regulated as as a type of agreement. So the point is, you can use a token. A, a token legally acquires the character of the use um, to which you are seeking to put it. So when you have people talking about utility tokens, you have to dig down and say, well, what, what is the actual purpose for which someone has acquired um, this, this thing? If they're acquiring it because, uh, you know, for money or money's worth, because they're expecting to get an investment return, then you're looking at it and say, well, it's not really a stick here, is it? It's not really a utility token. This is actually an investment. Um, you know, the substance of it is that it's an, it's an investment. Um, by contrast, though, if someone says, you know what, the token is not to be speculated on, it is designed to give you um, a crypto kitty, right, one-to-one, -one, and it's not going to get exchanged for anything, and it's not going to be listed on exchanges, and it, all it does is entitle you to this very fixed, specific commodity um, or, or, or some physical good, which exists here, and there's a one-to-one -one ratio of how you redeem it, then you're dealing with something which is potentially a utility token or or some kind of coupon almost rather than a security. So does that does that make some sense as to as to sort of how the distinction should work? It sort of does, yeah. And uh, also, I wanted to ask about the uh, the SEC because when uh, when Jay Clayton gave his testimony uh, before the Senate the other day, he um I think he said that uh, the SEC pretty much regards any ICO as a security. Like no matter what kind of uh, utility the token might have, or you know what legal gymnastics people might be doing to to make it not a security, they they still see it as a kind of security and want to regulate it as that. Um, so is is it possible to? Sorry. Yeah. No. No. Sorry. Go ahead. Is it no. I just to... want. Is it possible to actually avoid that, or will the SEC just basically jump in and say it's still a security no matter what you say? Well, Chairman Clayton actually chose his words extremely carefully. Um, he did not say, so at no point has the SEC said all tokens are securities. 
what he said, if memory serves, um, and apologies to Chairman Clayton if he ever winds up listening to this, and I, I've misquoted him, but I believe what he said was every so he was asked two questions. One was um, he said most ICOs that we've seen uh, have the characteristics of securities, and then he said every ICO that I have seen um, has the, the hallmarks or characteristics of a security. So in both of those cases, he wasn't really speaking on behalf of the agency, and that wasn't a policy ruling. That was him opining personally as to what you know what the score was with um, with most of the tokens he's encountered. Of course, we don't know what the set is of tokens that that Jay Clayton has seen in his career. So it's really impossible to say whether one token or another falls within that category. And I think that was deliberate. I think it was totally appropriate to do. So, so is it possible? Yes, of course, it's possible to say that a token is not a uh, is not a security and is something else. You can do that by taking the token and saying, well, let's say it's a, oh, I don't know. Let's say a token entitles you to come by my house uh, and pick up a marmot uh, from my marmot farm, right? And it's a one-to-one -one pegged exchange. I issue the tokens when you pay me $300, and it entitles you to one marmot and one marmot only, and you can go to my place or any other of a network of farms that I run and pick up a marmot uh, on presentation of a token and re you know, reconveyance of the token to the seller. So that would be that would be something akin to a, a non-security use of a blockchain token. Or if you were looking at a customer reward program or air miles or some existing category of thing where you, you're not exchange listing the tokens on something like Polo or Kraken, but what you've got is an infrastructure to redeem those tokens for goods and services at a fixed rate or a fixed price. So there you're looking at, and you know, prefacing that with A, I'm not a US lawyer, so you know, it would <laughs> be um, even, you know, even in the UK. People need to take their own legal advice here because it's very going to be very fact-driven. Um, which you know, which side of uh, of the law a given scheme falls on? It's not just saying, well, you know, we we created this. So let's say, by way of another example, um, I have a marmot farm, and I say, if you give me one hundred and twenty-five dollars, I'll give you this token, which entitles you to a marmot, and I'll grow some other marmots, and maybe there'll be an investment return, you know, built into that. You can tack on other things to that scheme that I've just described, and it will become a security. And in fact, there's a case from the 1980s called SEC versus Weaver Beaver Association, where someone managed to turn a beaver farm into a investment contract by doing exactly that. So so, so this is the kind of stuff that people do. They, they wind up turning these things into securities because that's a way that they can get investment funds into their hands. Um, so yeah, it, of course, it's possible to, in theory, to structure a token that doesn't operate like an investment of some kind. Um, the question is, you know, how do you do it? And um, and you know, most people don't most people don't want to do it that way because if you don't have it as a sort of investable critter, uh, it's harder to get attention. It's harder to get venture capital right now, and um, you don't get those kind of viral network effects that you get when you have speculators piling into a new coin and you know jacking up the price to whatever. What do you think the regulators will want to? do about tokens so there's different types of tokens right and we've been talking about these like these tokens that they go up in value obviously what about like things like stable coins what do you what do you think that they will do to, to things like that this is all really fact I mean again I we can't really know what the what's going on in the regulators heads um, and the, the type of enforcement that we've seen to date from regulators all over the world has really only been against 
schemes which are really manifestly obviously fraudulent. So, um, so if you're looking at something like BitConnect, for example, uh, that you know, that's the kind of scheme which gets enforced against, or or Genius at Work or Gaw Miners, that's the kind of scheme that gets enforced against. So they're going against really major, notorious, and flagrant violations of the law rather than um, rather than more subtle ones, um, or rather than ones that people are still making money and at least it's you know honest, but it may you know not comply with this regulation or that, or it may not be registered. Um, so with stablecoins and 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 what what have you. You know, you can't really know. I think it's all in the same bucket at this point. You have a, you know, a couple of schemes which have been enforced against, and that is by far the minority. And then you have a huge quantity of schemes that have continued without any enforcement whatsoever. Um, and and so they, you know, so it, it's a wait and see. We can't really know which ones are going to move against when or why, or for what reason. I'm generally quite skeptical of, you know, the stablecoin claim. It's really just a margin. Uh, a margin long position and whatever the you know the underlying cryptocurrency is so it exposes people who use it to quite a bit of potential loss but um, but so far people have been creating them i haven't seen a single case where a, a seen or heard of a single case where a stable coin uh, and they've they've been around since 2014 i haven't heard of a single instance where one has been called up you know by a regulator and said hold on a second you're operating an investment scheme or a lending scheme or um, or, or, or a commodity or security or anything else. So it's just a, a question of waiting and seeing at this point. Actually, I think the term stablecoin itself might be a bit of an insider term in this industry. So if anyone's listening and they don't know what that is, could you just do a brief explanation what stablecoin actually means? Sure. So a stablecoin is um, how to describe it. So back in 2014, People started, Vitalik Buterin was one of the guys, Robert Sams was another, um, and a couple of people had this idea. They said, well, look, cryptocurrency is really, really volatile. So how can we architect a system that will allow people to uh, enjoy stability uh, on a, with a cryptocurrency, which is totally decentralized? How can we fix the price to, let's say, a dollar um, and say that one of you know, you know, X coin is going to equal one dollar at all times? And generally speaking, people have arrived at, they've said, well, we can do this, but the way that we do it is as follows. Uh, we take a cryptocurrency of some kind, we then figure out how much that cryptocurrency is worth, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the dollar. So let's say you have X coins and it's 300 X coins or 100 X coins to the dollar. Let's make it, it pretty simple. Um, and you want to create um, a stable coin with your X coins. What you do is you have a smart contract, a script where you would lock up 300 X coins, so $3 worth of X coins as collateral. And that would then allow you to create a derivative from those X coins, which would be your stable coin. And that would say, be able to trade at a dollar. The reason it would be able to do that is because the 300 worth of X coin you've just locked up uh, can be drawn upon by someone who holds the stable coin uh, in order to ensure that they can dispose of the stable coin for a dollar or at least trade it into X coins worth a dollar and then go out somewhere else and get their dollar back. So the idea is that by setting that up in this big collateral pool, um, you're able to uh, you're able to provide enough value locked up in the system that someone can say, you know what, this is this should trade at a dollar because I should always be able to get a dollar out, no more, no less, from this coin. The issue with that is that it's kind of like a, a, a margin-long borrowing position. So imagine you have 300 X coins and you use that to create a dollar, right? Which you then go and use to say, go buy whatever. Let's say you buy new X coins, right? 
So what you've done there is you've said, I've got 300 X coins, I've generated a stable coin worth a dollar, and I've gone and spent it to go buy another 100 X coins. So I now have 400 X coins. Um, if the price goes up, the whole scheme works perfectly well because at the end of the day, um, you know, the dollar isn't worth any more. All of my collateral has risen in value. I can you know, swap it out and isn't it great and I have more money now than what, than when I started with. If the price goes down, however, you're exposed 4x than if you had 100x coins to begin with. So let's say worth a dollar, right? So if you took, if you had $4 to start and you bought uh, 100x coins and then had $3 and then the price of x coin dropped 50%, uh, you would lose 50 cents and you'd have 350 left over. If, however, you put your $3 into Xcoin, you then bought a fourth dollar worth of Xcoin, and then the price of Xcoin dropped 50%, uh, you would have, uh, you would actually, so you'd have to subtract the dollar because you'd have to pay that back, and then you would have a dollar fifty left over. So, so the difference is that in one scheme, your losses exceed uh, that of the other scheme because you're so you're exposed to so much more downside risk because everything is denominated and, con and consists of the underlying cryptocurrency. So if the cryptocurrency drops in price, you get hit four times as hard than if you just left your stuff in dollars or gone out and bought dollars in the first place. I want to shift away from tokens, and I know you have some background in this, so I wanted to ask about private blockchains because they were very talked about uh, a few years ago. I think they sort of dominated 2015. How do you feel about private blockchains uh, in 2018 and sort of like the future? I feel pretty good about it, actually. Um, there are some very interesting projects that uh, that I'm not going to talk about at this juncture that I've advised on uh, using private blockchains, which I think will be, um, you know, so they it, now the applications that we're seeing, so a bit of history. If we were having this discussion in 2015, you had maybe 10 or 15 banks that were doing preliminary uh, first round prototypes. Uh, you know, with this technology. If we were having the conversation in 2016, then you had maybe 50 or 60 banks that were doing first round prototypes with this tech. 2017, um, you were looking at increasingly advanced prototypes and very well-funded startups, um, if we can really call them that, um, developing more advanced prototypes using blockchain tech and all kinds of blockchain clients moving into production. So you had uh, Fabric who went to production Intel Sawtooth, uh, which is part of Hyper, both of which are part of Hyperledger. Both of those went into production. JP Morgan's Quorum, that's in production. And Quorum is, I think, uh, it's a Ethereum virtual machine. So you suddenly have all these software platforms going into production. So companies that want to build on those platforms are feeling much more comfortable about saying, because in 2016, everyone's like, eh, we're not sure what the choice of technology is. We're not sure what platform we want to use. You know, so they kind of held back and waited. Now it's becoming clear that there are really two or three players. One of those players is anything with an Ethereum virtual machine on it. And of that, there are only two or three, really two or three clients that are that are worth talking about. And, um, and so people pick one of the two or three, and then they go and, and run with it. So so I think that um, you know people are. It's a very hype-free business. It has to um, it has to justify its own existence. We're, the implementations that I've seen or the applications I've seen tend to be very industry specific. Uh, they do not uh, involve retail uh, customers or investors. It all tends to be institutional, uh, where you can get buy-in and put together a consortium relatively quickly, uh, as long as you're, you're well-connected. So, so yeah, I mean, it's an interesting uh, space, and it'll be interesting to see what happens in 2018, because I suspect a lot of these projects are gonna go into production in 2018. Excellent. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. Uh... Fantastic information there, Patrick. Yeah, sorry, 
Preston. Um, so do you act, would you actually advise other lawyers to get into this space or um, do you find that it's a little bit risky and a little bit scary? It's not risky or scary at all. I think you have to be, um, I think you have to be careful not to tell clients what they want to hear and tell them what they need to hear because there's, there's a lot of work out there for someone who will justify crypto is full of people who are full of very, very big ideas and, um, they're, they will pay you a lot of money if you are willing to endorse those ideas or validate them. Uh, if you're not willing to do that, they will not pay you a lot of money because they're, they hold their ideals uh, more closely, I, I suspect, than they, than they hold compliance. Um, you know, people in crypto care a lot about what they're doing. They care about their work. They think that uh, they're doing God's work, really, with this stuff and decentralization and, uh, and taking on you know, central location, loci of power. So, so that's, what, that's, what, that's the attitude that your average crypto client is coming in with. Um, and don't tell, yeah, don't, if, you're in, if, if you're willing not to tell people what they want to hear, I think there's plenty of good work out there for a junior lawyer. Uh, these are really interesting people who will be running the world in 10 years. Uh, this, all, all of the people in it who I know are, are some of the smartest people around. And so it's a great thing to get into. And just be careful, I think, of, of who you encounter. I mean, I'm, I haven't practiced really in this space since 2014. Um, but I have been working in the space since 2014 and running my own company. So you can see a lot of people who are who spin a lot more BS than others, and just be be have your BS alarm on on high alert, uh, particularly as long as the ICO boom is ongoing. Um, but apart from that, I, I recommend enter entering the space wholeheartedly. I've made some very good friends in it, and everyone I've met is uh, is is brilliant. So, cool. And if uh, if people want to catch up with all your latest thoughts on this, so where should they go? Yeah, so you can you can either follow me on Twitter. Uh, that's at Preston J Byrne B Y R N E or uh, PrestonBurn.com, and uh, there I, I have pictures of marmots and other fuzzy animals generally uh, on my Twitter feed at all times, and uh, crypto criticism, and uh, very friendly. I don't bite, I promise. Alrighty. Okay, thanks. You've been listening to Automata with John Southurst and Daniel Corey. For, uh, for all the latest crypto and tech news, check out bitsonline.com. And Daniel here is the co-founder and CEO of Pactum Capital, which is a cryptocurrency derivatives firm. And you can find that at pactumcapital.com. Alrighty, we'll be back soon with another report from the crypto economy. And always remember, the future is automated. See you next time. Bye-bye.